Hi John, how are you doing today? Yeah, hi Richard, it's a beautiful Sunday today. How are you? I'm very well too. Yes, the skies are in fact very blue and very bright. Absolutely. Summer is always. Absolutely. So John, uh, I have a very interesting topic today because I have been reading a lot about it and the topic's also been in discussion of late. Mm. Uh because uh, Elon Musk has been speaking a lot about it. Uh the subject being first principles of thinking. I think uh you know in all the management books and in all um, the self help books that one reads there is this component that uh elevates one from only working hard to working smart to achieving success. And one of the components that defines success largely is something called first principles of thinking. So that's going to be our subject for today and I'm very keen to know your views and your perspectives on it. So to dive straight into the subject if we start with uh can you explain to us what does first principles thinking mean yeah so first principles thinking is one of my favorite topics uh and it's it would be lovely to share my thoughts on this it's really about That's looking awesome. yes yeah, so it's really about looking at things around uh you from a very fresh perspective right uh, a lot of times when we are uh, going about our daily lives You know, uh, there are times when we are actively thinking, and there are times when we are using heuristics to make assumptions on things around us. So, first principles thinking is about identifying the assumptions that we are inherently making uh, in the way that we go about things, uh, questioning some of those assumptions, and breaking down, uh, you know, uh, the the facets behind those assumptions into smaller components. Uh, and asking why multiple times uh, until one reasons down to uh, you know something which is a little more fundamental uh, okay. just to give you a couple of examples of how uh, you know different people uh, have done this you, you talked about elon musk so i'll take a couple of examples of what elon musk really did this uh, and how okay. he really applied first principles thinking in his businesses right uh, so the first uh, really you know well known example is that of uh, how we looked at battery packs right and uh-huh. uh, you know one of the assumptions that people had around was that battery packs are really expensive and that's just the way they always be right uh, and historically it uh, costed about 600 dollars per kilowatt hour uh, you know oh. uh, the cost of power from a battery pack uh and some may people felt that you know it's uh, been around that kind of a cost and it's not going to change much in the future and what elon mm-hmm. musk did was to uh, break down the constituents of a battery right uh and he said you know the battery has got cobalt nickel aluminum carbon uh you know uh, some ways of separating all these chemicals or elements into different sections uh and when they combine with each other that's where electricity gets generated right right uh, so he said you know what if we bought all these items on a commodity exchange what would they cost him right and based on that costing uh you know he came up with a cost of just about 80 dollars per kilowatt right wow yeah which is 15% of uh you know the cost of 600 dollars right uh So he said, you know what? If I can buy each of these materials and figure out a way to combine them, I can get a much cheaper battery. Right? Mm-hmm. And that was really pivotal to his success, uh, you know, with batteries. Right? 
the other thing other example i could give was how you know uh, he looked at the cost of a rocket and he realized that you know the way the world is going about building rockets uh, it would cost mm-hmm. about 5 million dollars right uh, mm-hmm. when he looked at the components of a rocket he realized that the actual cost to the material cost really 2% of the 5 million dollars right uh, uh-huh. so he said okay let me build my own rocket uh, and the other thing he did was to say you know what uh, today every time we build a rocket Uh, and it goes off to space. Uh, you know, we discard it, and it never comes back. Right? But what if we could right. reuse? What if we could reuse a lot of these components? Right? So some components get discarded, or uh, are one-time use, but some components could uh, be reused for multiple space flights. Right? Uh, so by combining these two, we were able to drastically bring down the cost of space flight. Right? And that is the secret of the success of space flights as well. Ah, all right. So, John, this brings me to an interesting point that uh, first principles thinking has been existing for centuries together. So, right from Aristotle, then to Edison, now Marx. But it clearly is not our first mode of thinking. It's not as simple as it sounds. So, can you tell us what comes in between first principles thinking becoming the absolute uh, first way of thinking for us as individuals? Yeah, so I think there's a lot of brain psychology behind this uh, as to why we don't mm-hmm. inherently use first principles thinking, right? Uh-huh. Uh, so uh, a lot of times, you know, as we operate and go about our daily lives, we make very simplifying assumptions around about the world around us, right? And uh, these are called heuristics, right? Hmm. Uh, uh, and for example, if I am on the way from office to home. I don't actively think about each turn on the way, right? I, in fact, uh, do it almost in autopilot. Right? Yes. Uh, and the reason why this is is because you know our brain is structured uh, as the limbic inner brain versus the uh, prefrontal cortex, which is the outer brain, right? And mm-hmm. which which developed much later uh, from a biological perspective, right? Okay. Um, So the limbic inner brain takes much less energy, uh, you know, than the prefrontal cortex, and a lot of our active decision making uh, actually happens in the prefrontal cortex. But it also consumes a lot of energy, uh, and therefore uh, it's much more efficient to move, uh, you know, uh, a lot of work to the limbic brain. Uh, and the limbic brain is where all our heuristics get stored, get stored, right? Okay. Uh, so, when, so when we are actively making decisions, we use the prefrontal cortex, the outer brain. Uh, but a lot of the heuristics mm-hmm. where we want to save our thinking time, where we want to save our energy, you know, happens in the limbic brain, right? So uh, there is a biological reason to why we don't use first principles thinking, right? Because going with heuristics is always uh, a lot easier, uh, you know, and consumes a lot of uh, consumes much less energy. Than actively okay. thinking about each and every decision uh, that we have to make as we go about the daily lives. So, and uh, this, uh, you know, basic fact is what leads a lot of us to uh, not question things around us, right? But uh, just go by the assumptions that are around us and then just build on top of the assumptions. Because energy-wise, right. that's actually far more efficient. Uh, so that may not be the more effective way of doing things. Right. Uh, right. The other aspects over here are, you know, uh, 
you know having comfort with ambiguity uh, a lot of us may not be very comfortable with ambiguity right so we may want uh, you know a bedrock of you know so called bedrock of truth to start off with right sure. that sure. makes us a lot more comfortable a uh, lot of times dogma comes in the way of you know first principles thinking uh, because if uh-huh. you're hearing if you're hearing from authorities around you that this is the way it always has been right uh, right so your your tendency to question uh, you know uh, the authority becomes uh, a challenge right uh, and i think uh, one of the biggest reasons why first principles thinking doesn't happen enough is because our education system help you know encourages to think convergent right whereas first principles mm. thinking uh, requires a lot of divergent thinking right uh, so mm-hmm. convergent thinking is about saying how do we get to a solution at the earliest or the quickest way mm. right and mm. that's what you're you're encouraged to solve for uh, in your school and college education right whereas divergent thinking is about saying you know what how can we do this differently right and that again requires uh, a lot more energy uh, and it requires a lot more effort right and right. Uh, we are not trained to think that way either, right so i think these are some of the reasons why first principles thinking probably doesn't happen enough. you know i was reading something very interesting when i was reading up on the subjects of first principle thinking and uh, it actually took me by surprise that we're always used to building on our experiences and we often use experiences as analogies when we are you know uh, addressing people or trying to solve a problem because there is we take our learnings and then try to implement them what i came across while i was reading up on first principle thinking is even though individuals who use analogies think they are smarter they actually make bad decisions and i was like one second hold on i need to dig deeper into this can you tell us why i think this is a very interesting aspect that you just brought about right in fact one of the very common uh you know uh, games that we make people play uh, you know there's a game called desert survivor right where you keep people okay. where you split people into teams and each team uh, gets a list of say 15 different items which they can use uh, if they get stranded in a desert right to increase mm. their chances of survival right mm-hmm. and uh, each group is then encouraged to brainstorm uh, so first each person uh, decides their own list of priority uh, in terms of the 15 items and then as mm-hmm. a as a group you brainstorm and then you come out to the group list uh, you know in terms of uh, you know what the group thinks is the priority list of things that you need to carry with you in a desert right mm-hmm. and uh, after doing these games hundreds of times with different cohorts uh, uh-huh. you know uh, the the measure of success over here is if the group is able to reach a more optimum uh, answer compared to you know each individual themselves trying to solve this problem right uh, mm-hmm. and uh, the worst offenders over here who move groups groups away from the optimum are the people who come and say you know what i've got a lot of experience in this already right <laughs> and they say that you know what i i've been there i've done this right and Uh, I know how this works, right? And then they force right. the group away from a more optimum answer. Why? Because I think their experience uh, has come in the way of thinking from scratch over here, right? Uh, right. So I think that's a that's a very good example uh, of how you know people end up using experience uh, or analogies, uh, but end up making decisions which are actually far worse off 
than if they use first person singular. Okay, so now I'm going to you know, extend this question further to say, if we if we have to look at a very basic, simple real life example, where one can uh, apply first principles thinking, what example would you give? So I think that one of my favorite examples is that of you know how children learn to cycle, right? Ah, okay. Yeah. So, and I'm sure you know everyone can relate to this example. We all had a moment where. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, we first got that magical act of cycle balance, right? Yes. And after a lot of you know uh, worry and uh, fear about how on earth will that happen, right? So we start yes. off by having our parents coming behind us, uh, you know, buying a cycle uh, and then holding, holding our uh, you know cycle from the back and pushing us along, and then letting go every once in a while. Uh, and for a long time, you just don't have cycle balance. And then while a one fine day, you just have cycle balance, right? And that's like magic. Yes, that's magic. Yes. Yeah. So a uh, lot of times we've tried to solve uh, the problem of teaching a child uh, how to get balance uh, by mm-hmm. giving them training wheels, right? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Uh, now it turns out that the training wheels are actually worse off as a solution than having no training wheels at all, right? Oh, really? Because uh, a cycle, uh, learning to cycle is actually two separate problems, right? Uh, uh-huh. One, one is what you call the balancing problem, right? How do you learn right. balance, right? How do you learn how a gyroscope works and how do you balance a turning wheel, yeah. right? That's number one. Uh, the second one is that of what we call the pedaling problem, right? How do you learn how to pedal, right? Right. Uh, now the pedaling problem is actually a lot easier than the balancing problem. Right. Uh, so uh, most cycles, when they have pedals and when they have training wheels, what children really learn is how to pedal, right? But they don't learn how to balance. Got right? it. Yes, of course. And then learning how to balance becomes really, really tough, right? Correct. So what people came up with as a solution to this is by not only removing the training wheels, but they actually remove the pedals itself, right? And you had these okay. cycles for children, which uh, you know uh, did not have pedals, and you just have to you know push yourself along using your legs, right? Okay. Yeah, and then what happened because of that is when you push yourself along with only your legs, uh, uh-huh. you know you don't have to worry about the pedaling problem because there's nothing to pedal, right? So the child okay. ends up focusing on balancing, and that's the only problem that they are trying to solve, right? Oh. Okay, yeah. And people realize that they are able to learn how to balance far faster. Uh, and it's a lot easier to learn how to pedal once you know how to balance than to learn how to balance once you know how to pedal. Right? Yeah, yeah. Yes. So this is a very, very simple example of looking at, you know, breaking down the problem of cycling into, you know, two separate problems and then figuring out which problem to actually solve for first. Right? Uh, so I thought this is a very very good example of how uh, first principles teaching really works. Wow, this is that simple. I think I wish I would have known this when we were children. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Rather than falling and bleeding and bruising yourself, and finally one fine day saying, "I know how to cycle." Sure. So, John, this then you know now we've understood what first principles thinking is, uh, how one can simplistically implemented in day-to-day living. Now let's get into the corporate world. 
and I'm going to trace back to a couple of our podcasts, you know, where we did left brain versus right brain thinking, then we did whole brain thinking, and I know at End Paradigm, we're in, you know, you're encouraging individuals uh, to hone both their skill sets, you know, get creative, get analytical, and build their strength. When you come to first principles thinking, and we keep breaking down uh, problems in a corporate boardroom when you're anyways racing against time, you. Are stressed. You're racing against time. You're anxious. So there are a lot of other external factors, you know, influencing that problem-solving mechanism. In a situation like that, you're also expecting somebody to think out of the box, to be, to think creatively, to think analytically. In all of this, how do you still anchor yourself into first principle thinking? Yeah. So I think there are two parts to your question, Richa. One is, you know, how yeah. do you make it? How do you make it safe for people to? Uh, you know, be creative, right? In the first place, yes, absolutely. Right? Yes. How do you make it safe for people to, uh, you know, come and say, you know, what I know, this is the way we have always done this, uh, mm-hmm. but uh, can I suggest uh, a different approach, right? And that, yeah, uh, that becomes a big challenge uh, in organizations, right? In fact, uh, the larger the organization, the more its legacy, right? Uh, the greater its history, uh, this yes. becomes more. You know, uh, exponentially tougher and tougher with every, right? Yes. Uh, because the moment you propose something new, uh, you know, immediately you you get resistance from the system, and you know, uh, where the system says, no, no, but that's not the way we do it here, right? This is the way we want this done, right? True. Uh, so, uh, from a culture perspective, uh, can we make it safe for people to come in and say, can we do something different? Right. Maybe we never did mm-hmm. it this way. Uh, maybe this is going to fail, right? But can the organization create a sandbox for uh, people to do things differently and you know fail uh, and celebrate uh, the failure in the sense that you know celebrate the act of trying out trying out something different, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so a lot of times we are used to celebrating success, uh, and yeah. success happens when we've got a lot of things right, and therefore you know the cumulative outcome is success, right? Uh, but can we also celebrate uh, people trying to do things different, right? Uh, yeah. And uh, you know, that's a very uh, simple way of looking at this by saying, you know, uh, as an organization, how much of a time is going to exploit, uh, and how much of a time is going into experiment, right? So exploiting right. is basically what we already know works. Uh, we put our energy there, and we know we will get business results. We make money. Right. Whereas experimenting is knowing that you know this may fail, right? But it's okay, right? So can right. the organization and can individual teams, the organization, uh, very consciously split time between exploration and exper- or, or exploitation and experimentation, right? Yeah, true, very true. Yeah. So if that becomes a formal process, then you know uh, employees get the understanding that. You know, uh, uh, this this pers- you know this initiative that we're doing is an experimental initiative, right? And mm-hmm. uh, it's okay to think very differently, and it's okay to question assumptions, uh, and it's okay to fail in the worst case, right? Yes. So that is yes. So this is one one aspect of culture, right? Mm-hmm. From a, a practical perspective, in terms of how one can build on top of first principles thinking, uh, mm-hmm. there's a there's a very useful framework called Scamper. Oh, okay. Uh, so, Scamper stands for substitute, combine, uh-huh. adapt, uh-huh. modify, put uh-huh. to other use, eliminate, and rearrange. 
right? So the three, the you know, seven different words of scamping, right? Okay. And I'm just going to going to give you very simple examples of uh, how scamper can be used in real life, just to illustrate what scamper means, right? Let's uh, do it. Yes. Yeah. So substituting is about replacing uh, something with something else, right? Okay. Uh, for example, how Steve Jobs came up with the idea of replacing keyboards in the phone with uh, mm-hmm. the finger, right? And therefore, the yes. need for a the need for a touch screen, right? Touch screen, yes. Uh, so that's that's an example of substitute. Uh, combine. Uh, you know, I'm going to go back say uh, 600 years back to when the printing press was was really uh, invented, right? Uh, so oh, wow, Johann yes. Johann Gutenberg, you know. uh he combined the mechanics of a coin punch with that of a wine press uh and he combined the two to create the first printing press right yeah uh, so that's that's a great example of com- combination right? uh-huh. uh the the next one is adapt right uh so the example i would like to give is that of the chemist uh helen barnett bisserens right uh so uh you know she was working on the aspect of how deodorants could be applied better on the body right and okay. uh, a colleague suggested that you know just like ball point pens have this roller ball where the ink gets yeah. applied to paper right uh, you know you could use the same roll on method to to apply deodorant on the body right so that you can apply wow. <laughs> yeah so that you can apply uh, deodorant uh, to the specific part of the body without your fingers having to get you know Uh, used in the in the middle, and then you have to go and wash your fingers otherwise. Uh, yeah, so that's an example of right. adapt. Uh, uh-huh. The next part is modify, right? So uh, the example I'd like to take here is that of uh, how Percy Spencer uh, was working on a radar project using uh, a vacuum tube, tube technology, right? Uh, which okay. is called a which is called a magnetron. and mm-hmm. uh they were trying to figure out how you know you can make better radar right um, mm-hmm. and and he found that the chocolate in his pocket melted uh and uh you know he later you took an egg uh and uh-huh. placed it near the device and he found that the egg was getting you know fried or boiled right uh, so he realized that this device could now cook food so he started he used modified the use of the magnetron And came up with today what we call the microwave oven. Right. right. And right. this is a completely new way of cooking. Right. So this is an example of using yeah. modify, uh, where the same product or the same technology can be used for a completely different use case. Right. Yeah. Uh, the other, uh, you know, very relatable example is where, you know, in the early ni- 1900s, diamonds are used uh, only for industrial use. Right. Uh, but then right. uh, DBS came up with this uh, brilliant marketing campaign where they said, you know, uh, if you have to get married, you you have to give your wife an engagement ring, right? <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. And uh, that idea became so mainstream that uh, uh, no man could get married without giving a diamond engagement ring, <laughs> you know, to his fiance, right? And their sales actually went up from. About twenty million dollars to about two billion dollars uh, in just forty years. Right. Uh, so that's that's one more example. Uh, eliminate. Uh, I've already shared one example with you, right? That you know that if you want yeah. to uh, teach children cycle balance, how do you remove pedals from uh, the cycle? 
I mean, so you're actually eliminating things rather than adding something new to solve the problem, right? Right. And the final example, uh, you know, for for the word rearrange, right? Uh, the example I could give is that of McDonald's, where uh, they rearranged the entire eat- eating experience by offering drive-throughs. So they were one of the first chains to come up with the concept of drive-throughs, where you drive in, you order, you pay, you take your food, drive out, and only then do you eat. Right. So they shifted right. the eating experience out of you know the restaurant where people wanted to eat in their own cars, right? And it came up with a new new way of doing things, right? Right. Yeah. So uh, by looking at maybe a framework like Scamper, you know, as an organization, when you're trying to solve a problem, right? Uh, you know, first obviously, like I said earlier, uh, you know, identifying the assumptions that you're making, uh, questioning those assumptions, right? Breaking things down into smaller components, right? Uh, asking why right. multiple times. So all of these are some of the bedrocks of, uh, you know, uh, first principles thinking. Uh, but then to build on on top of this and then take this back to application, uh, you can also use an approach like Scamper, where uh, for any problem you can say, you know, should I try and use S C A M P E or R, right? And that itself gives you a lot of different ideas on how to how to approach that particular problem, right? And come out with very creative solutions, right? So I hope, Richa, I've been able to answer your question. Yes, in fact, you know, now as you were, uh, a, I think uh, this is the best way to learn through examples. So I was literally like a student in an e classroom listening to a professor share examples and such interesting examples. The second bit is also interesting in these examples where you can be creative, analytical at the same given point of time. Because you know, very often when we micro assess something, we get into nitty gritties and we lose the larger picture. But Scamper actually zones you out to give you the larger picture. And what I wanted to ask you, you know, it's an interesting question to conclude this podcast with is: You're an entrepreneur. You're a mentor. You're a husband. You're a father. Uh, you essay many roles. Where do you think first principle thinking needs to first be introduced to a child, and when? Yeah, I think that's a great question. Uh, so, uh, if you look at how children usually behave, right? Uh, you know, first principles thinking come very naturally to them, right? Uh, mm. So, for example, uh, my son has this habit of asking why an infinite number of times, right? Uh, you know, why does this happen? And then when you answer that question, then he again goes into, but why does that happen? You know, and at some point you say, you know what, just shut up, right? <laughs> I've had enough, yes. <laughs> and I think that that is what you know one has to resist as a parent, right? Because what the child really is trying to do is very intuitively apply first principles thinking because they don't uh, because they they don't come in with so many assumptions, right? They don't already have a big body of knowledge in their brain, right? Correct. Because they don't have that big body of knowledge, it's very easy for them to question assumptions that we all are already making, right? Uh, we we would never say you know what uh, how is it that when I press the accelerator the car moves forward right we yeah. just do it every day right uh, but the child will do that right and they'll ask you know how does this work why does this work this way right and I think that's uh, what you need to encourage more and more in children right uh, so they they come in that way out of the box right and uh, what we need to be careful is you know that how. Uh, from an educational approach or an education system, we don't then, you know, 
really suppress that in them uh, and prevent them from thinking interesting so can i safely say first principle thinking begins at home <laughs> yeah i think that's 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 a very good way of putting it yeah like one more pressure on to parents now you also got to inculcate first principle thinking in your child Absolutely. No, John, but this was this was really interesting because I, you know, uh, um, it just seems like a very big subject. But when you break it down, it actually brings us down to the basics of thinking, and maybe that's why it's very aptly called first principles thinking. So uh, it's just probably in our entire our education system so far, which of course is also looking at a change with the new education policy. I think we will see the wheel moving uh, from one's childhood. So when they finally come in and you know sit in boardrooms. they are looking at first principle thinking being their first approach to thinking so Absolutely. i think we're on the verge of change the wheels are changing and uh, the next time i look at a bicycle i am going to imagine how it's going to look without pedals so thank you for that great i think that's that's a very good way of you know putting first principle thinking to, to use immediately in a child thank you john very much such a pleasure chatting with you and speak to you soon same here Thank you.